Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 27, Face to Face. Have we lost sight of the true message of the gospel? Is mankind actually separated from God? And if not, what is the current state of humanity? We discuss these things and more in this first half of our chat with Baxter Kruger. Baxter uh, and I discovered we have a common, very dear friend uh, who's been on this podcast before, uh, Brad Jerzak. It's always great when you find mutual friends, and then through the discussions, we're finding we've got more mutual friends and influences. Uh, Baxter's uh, The Great Dance was a really impactful book for me uh, about the whole thing of Perichoresis, which we'll talk about later. Um, his, uh, his book, Patmos, I've read a couple of times, uh, and it's just excellent. So, Pat... Uh, Baxter, I nearly called you Patmos. Uh, Baxter, <laughs> uh, I have, besides our usual Facebook thing, I sent out uh, emails to about 100 of my friends said, if you can possibly get some time, uh, join us on this. So uh, I'm really delighted you could be with us. Thanks for yeah, it, making the time. I, I've been looking forward to this for a good while. It's um, it's a treat. And, and we do have, I think we were going to discover we have a lot more common friends. There's a lot of overlap going on right now. It seems like for years, the Lord had us all kind of solo digging and scrapping and clawing and trying to recover the gospel. And then and you you could easily believe you were the only one. And then all of a sudden you start meeting people. And then and then the the uh, networks that exist uh, begin to overlap. And that's yeah. what's pretty exciting. Yeah, you know, you get and then people like Paul Young write a book like The Shack and and uh, and off it goes. Uh, a phenomenon upon phenomena and the movie and it's still selling books and, and the movie's still selling around the world um, I wrote I wrote Across All Worlds about a year before Paul wrote The Shack and we didn't know each other at all never even heard of each other and a friend of mine when he read The Shack said you've you've got to read a book called Across All Worlds because it's the theology of The Shack and he said I'll read it I, just, I don't know who Baxter is and so he gave me my phone number his name was Tim Brassell and and the next day, which was Sunday uh, afternoon, Paul phoned me out of the blue, and I had just finished reading the shack on the on the, the in the Cadillac stand, as we called it in those days, and deer hunting. And uh, it was absolutely amazing to me. I couldn't believe he called me. He didn't even know who I was, and we started talking. And I thought, this is this is a stunning uh, phone call. And we've been just best friends ever since. And we get to do a lot of stuff together around the shack and the shack revisited. Now it's spilled over into all kinds of things. And, um, it's beautiful. So you said something a minute ago that kind of piqued my curiosity. And I've got questions written here and I'm already going to go off script. <laughs> but you, you said something. You said trying to recover the gospel. Uh, and I, I wonder what you mean by that. I, uh have we lost the gospel somehow? Yes, we definitely have lost the gospel. And, and I didn't realize this when I, on the first draft of, of Patmos, uh, when Aiden is in the cave by himself and he doesn't know what's happened to him. Uh, later in the second draft, as I begin to add to the story, I realized that Aiden is the Western church. Uh, he's a good man. He's not a bad man. And he's done everything that he was told to do and he's a theologian and he studied the early church and he's he's all in his head um and he's even been to therapy and he's been through three or four or five different denominations and he finally just crashes and you know is suicidal and he wakes up in this cave 
he doesn't even know it's a cave. Eventually, he sees what he thinks and hopes is light and makes his way forward to the mouth of the cave. And he meets an old man uh, whose name is John. And, and he doesn't believe that this could possibly be John. It turns out to be John. So uh, John the Apostle and Aiden is time travel. So the story is really between John wants to know about what's happened in uh, to the churches. And Aiden doesn't care. He wants to just pick John's brain. But then the real message is John has been sent back on a mission. Uh, and the mission is to lead Aiden to discover Jesus Christ himself in person inside of his own soul and inside of his own darkness and to lead Aiden to in, in Jesus to meet the Holy Spirit and see God the Father through Jesus's eyes. That's the mission. And as I wrote that, I realized that's that's ac- actually at the heart of my uh, of my calling from very early on in my life. I didn't know at the time. To call it, I, I need to recover. I need to be part of the recovery of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is is the news that Jesus Christ is in you, and he's and we're in him, and he did that. And when that message is recovered and proclaimed, things happen on the inside of people. It ceases to be a theological argument. It happens on the inside. And that's what we read about in the book of Acts. And we see in all of Paul's letters and, and the gospels is that Jesus proclaims himself. And he says, you know, the kingdom is within you and the kingdom is Jesus in his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So if you ask me straight up, yes, we have lost the gospel. We're in the dark and don't know it. And the worst part of it is we're very, very, very religious. That's the worst form of darkness. I'm not saying everybody. I'm saying the system. And so the Lord has called us to recover, to go back to our first love, to recover the ancient message of the early church and the apostles. And it's enshrined for us in the Nicene Creed, but we really have never taken the creed that seriously. Most people, most people don't don't even think about the Trinity at all. And what we've been given in Jesus is a share and, and an inclusion in the very life that God has from all eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit. This, for example, as you well know, um, is where John begins his gospel. He, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He begins with a vision of the relationship of the Father and the Son, and he uses this little word, pros, which we translate with, but it means far more than like you two guys are sitting side by side. Prost would be when you turn towards each other face to face. That's what it means. <laughs> That's prost. And so I, I want to know why we haven't been preaching that in the Western tradition for the last 2,000 years. That's the most stunning news in the universe. That Jesus is turned toward the Father face to face communion from all eternity and all things came into being in him and through him and by him and for him in that relationship, which is exactly what he says at the end of his prayer. John seventeen twenty six, when he says, Father, I have made you your name known to them and I will make it known in order that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That is the gospel. That Jesus has come to find his way not only inside of us in some sort of generic positional way, literally, Jesus himself in us as the Father, Son, and as the one anointed in the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the gospel. And we haven't been preaching that in the Western tradition, and that's why it's so dead. Uh, and it's, t- it's time now to move forward. Back so, to back. So what we have been preaching, I think, in the Western church is, I think it, it's very simplistic uh, and I think it comes from John 14 6 and this was this is actually uh, something that you talked about dad in episode 123 uh, out of John 14 
verse 6, it says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, and so there's, there's a wide range of interpretations of what Jesus meant there, but I think much of the, uh, the church today is interpreting that as, hey, you pray a prayer to get through to, through to the Father through Jesus. Um, C.S. Lewis interpreted it quite differently in The Great Divorce, which I just read finally, just read recently, uh, where uh, those looking for the truth are going to recognize Jesus, and they may even get an option, you know, an opportunity to do that even after death. But again, the the current interpretation of that seems to be this very narrow, hey, pray the prayer and you're in, don't pray the prayer and you're out. Well, is, is that a fair interpretation of, of the current gospel well, I, as it's presented? I'm not calling it the gospel. That's the current message. That's what I grew up with and most of us did. It assumes, first, separation. It assumes, second, that John 1, 1 to 3 is not true. Because Jesus not only created all things, all things live and move and have their being in him. There is no separation. The problem is not separation. How do we get back? The problem is we're delusional and we're running from Jesus and running from the Father. So that's why all through John, he's talking about darkness and blindness and you won't come to the light and you won't come to me. So interestingly enough, John fourteen six, that little word pros is right there in that verse, and it's not translated. No one comes face to face with the Father but in me. Hmm. And, and it's not saying separation. He's telling telling us who he is. He's talking to his boys. I'm the one that's going to be in you, and I'm going to lift your face from shame to lift it up in me to see my Father face to face. And no one on earth can do that but me. He's not saying, ha ha, I got it, you don't. He's saying, that's why I have come, and I'm the only one in the universe that can do that. So it's beautiful to me. It's all through John, but that's a beautiful verse. But just pay attention to that little word, pros. And it starts in verse 1, and it's, it's littered all through his gospel. Um, and it's beautiful. It's face-to-face, and Jesus is the one. No one knows the Father. No one has ever seen God, is what John says in, the first, in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, ever. The one and only Son of the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He leads us to the Father's face. That's the Gospel of John right there in a nutshell. He takes responsibility for us. He takes responsibility. My, my dad, uh, y'all asked me the question about the Gospel. So, <laughs> uh, my, <laughs> Here we go. My dad uh, graduated in March. And he uh, he died of uh, Parkinsonians, which looked a lot like Alzheimer's to us. But um, I just saw the folly as he as he wound down and began to lose his capacity. Now he was a lawyer and a judge and a retired general in the National Guard. And to watch that that man wind down to where he didn't have command of his faculties, I thought this is exposing the folly of Western Christianity. That, that starts off with the message of separation, and it says you can get back across the divide through faith. And I'm looking at my dad lose his mind. Is the message, Dad, you got to hold on to your faith? you got to keep believing, Dad? I wrote on a Post-it note, uh, John 17, 26, and I put his name in there. I said, Jesus, I said, and I put it by the bathroom, and I put it by his, by his bed where he could see it. I have made you known, Father, to Don Kruger. And I will make him known in order that the love with which you love me may be in him and I am. And I told my dad again and again, Jesus is the one that has taken responsibility for finding you in your darkness. That's what you hope in. 
And it doesn't matter how dark it is. He's gotten to the bottom of it. And I watched my dad. It was a marvelous. I, I, the only way I can talk about it, I, he was graduating. He was still in his body, but you could see his inner man being renewed. He was seeing things and encountering things. I just think it was Jesus coming to find him at the, in the dark, deepest darkness. And we've turned the whole thing on its head. I mean, for Pete's sake, we, we actually have created a divide. If we are separated from God, we have no way of existing. That's, that, that's the testimony of historic Christianity. If Jesus withdrew himself, John Calvin says it, uh, Thomas Merton, if Jesus withdrew himself, from the human race, everything would vanish. Because, and so in most evangelical theology today, so-called, uh, we assume separation, which assumes that somehow human beings got here apart from Jesus and are still Pastor, here. Let me ask you a question, if I can, just because I got an email yesterday or a text from somebody uh, anticipating this, I think, uh, and said, doesn't it all just come down to what Paul said to the Ephesians, that uh, we are saved by faith? If we keep our faith, we're saved. Now, I'd love for you to open that up for a moment. Well, num- number one, my question is, if you ever met a human being on earth that can say, I believe, and I have moved beyond, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? <laughs> I mean, for real. So yeah. what are we what are we saying? Uh, is that you got to have 100% faith? What if you only get 15%? What if you don't have a mind that works at all like my dad? So that's number one, because mm-hmm. that puts uh, that puts the sensitive human being in a terrible place, because the minute the yapper comes and starts whispering, saying, well, come on now, what, yeah. what kind of faith do you have? Well, the message of the Bible is not about our faith. The message of the Bible is about the faith and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about in, in, in Ephesians 1, I mean, Ephesians 2. He's not talking, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's by grace you've been saved through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. But we, we assume separation, we read that text, and we say, yeah, faith is the gift of God. It means I'm, I'm in a place where I don't have faith, and he gives me faith, and now I have faith, and now I'm saved. Uh, the place of faith is not to move us from one side of a, a separation divide to another. Yeah. Faith, faith in the New Testament is, a, is fundamentally a discovery of what is. It is a person who is lost in the dark and the lights come on and you go, oh, my gosh, now I'm encountering reality. So faith is a discovery of what is which summons an acknowledgement from us. That's the amen that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. By him is our amen. And so our amen is yes. And every time we, we get stumble and we fall and we get confused, we go right back to Jesus, are you in me? Yes, I am. Okay, I can begin again. And I can. And so faith is the discovery of what is, of what God has made true with without our knowing it. In fact, and I'll, I'll show you this in John's Gospel, uh, but hang on. But it's, it, it summons, it, it is a discovery of what is. The lights come on. Faith is like Luther said, faith is, is like the eye. It doesn't create what it sees. It sees what's there. And so we're moving from reality to revelation. Faith is when the lights go on and you encounter Jesus inside of your own soul in darkness. It summons an amen, and then Jesus says, now walk with me. And, and that, to me, is the faith repentance part, is that repentance is not doing something that gets me across the divide. 
by faith and repentance, I walk across the divide, then I'm saved, then I'm reconciled, then I'm adopted, then I'm justified, all those things. Those, those things happened in Jesus. Faith is the discovery that these things happen and that we're included in this, which summons an amen and then summons a reckoning. And for me, uh, it's, it's a stunning historical fact that the Protestant Bibles translate metanoia as repentance. Mm. I mean, that's like, that's like repentancing. I mean, how in the world did we do that? And so metanoia is a radical change of mind. Yes, and what it, it and so what I, I tell people is, look, here's what repentance is. Sin, sin is saying to Jesus, you've lost your mind, and I want you to come take sides with me in the way I see things. And Jesus is saying, it's the other way around, Baxter. You've lost your mind. Now, I want you to take sides with me. Listen to me. Take sides with me against the way you think about my father, because you're dead wrong about it. Against the take sides with me against the way you see me. Let me blow your mind. Take sides with me against the way you think about the Holy Spirit. That's an ongoing moment by moment process. Jesus, would you tell teach me about the Holy Spirit? Because I'm way off on that. And certainly that's the Achilles heel of Western Christianity. Um, and take sides with me, Baxter, against the way you see yourself. And here's another one. Everybody else and creation. And how about this one? Take sides with me, Baxter, against the way you see your enemies. Now, that's what faith and repentance is. Walking in the light, as John would say in his first epistle, as Jesus is in the light and not walking according to our own understanding. So faith and repentance are critical not to get us across the divide, but so that we can begin to experience it. It's like dancing with someone in the dark and the lights come on. Hmm. That's that's Calvin. Cal, this is Calvin's definition of faith. Quote, now we shall possess a correct definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of the benevolence of God the Father towards us, grounded upon the freely given promise in Jesus Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts in the Holy Spirit. And then later on, he says, no one can apply himself seriously to repentance unless he knows he belongs to God. And we've reversed that order and joined on the side of the Roman Catholics and Protestant Protestantism. We don't preach forgiveness is prior to repentance and faith. Is that, that was what my professor, James Torres, used to say every single day. He'd say uh, forgiveness is logically prior to faith and repentance. And we've reversed the order and we've mm -hmm. said separation. So if you assume separation, you have to get back to God. Well, okay, there's going to be 44,000 versions of how to get back to God now in Christianity. And the minute you decide the way back to God is this way, then you're automatically against everybody else's view. And that's basically what Christianity has been doing for a long time in the West is we've been trying to prove that we were right and everybody else was wrong. And I grew up in the Southern Presbyterian conservative tradition. So not only was everybody else wrong, they weren't elect. Yeah. You know? So the faith that Paul is talking about all through his epistles, and this is a huge debate that goes back to the late 50s, and a guy named Howard, something Howard, uh, wrote on um, the faith uh, of Jesus, not faith in Jesus. And there's six passages in the New Testament where that um, one of them is in uh, Romans, and one of them is in Philippians, and one of them is in Galatians, uh, where, and uh, there's two in Romans, actually. But anyway, that when Paul writes about faith, He's not, he's not assuming you're separated from God and trying to get you to do something to get across. 
He's talking about God having come across to us and laid hold of us and taken us home. And it's a discovery, a discovery which moves us to tears. And when we get lost, we come back to that discovery again and get moved to tears again. Um, so that's 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 where you see that what I'm saying, and I'm not I'm not saying this on my own. I believe that this is the New Testament, and I believe that this is the early church. We fell back in the West to, to separation, and we fell into a legalistic framework, which is not the Bible's message, but it has been the way we've interpreted it. And so the Protestant Reformation was a first protest. And it seems as though 30 seconds after Luther and Calvin died, we went right back to rationalism and right back to separation. Um, but that's not what they were saying. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, I, I, I find myself in interesting position these days because I'm defending John Calvin all the time. But people like Brad Church. <laughs> I noticed Church, that several times. Yeah. I was caught by surprise. <laughs> well, don't apart from his, his bizarre view of predestination, which he got from Augustine, and apart from a section where he talks about false faith, uh, the most of the, the institutes of the Christian religion read beautifully. It's a devo- it's very devotional. It's real theology. Uh, most of it after that was like reading religious insurance manuals. Uh, it's all they're all up in their heads. So the, the Holy Spirit is turning the lights on across the world for people can discover Jesus inside themselves. And then he's saying, "Now let me blow your mind." Let me take your mind, Baxter, and like an old sock, reach into the end of it, pull it, and turn it inside out. That's how backwards this is. So that's what's happening right now around the world. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I have to argue the case. I get to present the gospel, and Jesus does. Uh, I participate in, in the awakening of the Holy Spirit in, inside of people. Yeah, I wanted to take just a quick break to remind people that our 2019 Journey of Compassion schedule is ready to go. If you head to impactnations.com slash J-O-C, you can discover how God might use you to bring the good news to the poor next year. Whether it be in Asia, South America, Europe, or Africa, you don't want to miss your chance to heal the sick, to meet the needs of the poor, and preach the gospel to some of the world's most vulnerable people. God's waiting to use you to change lives. Visit impactnations.com slash J-O-C to learn more today. And now we rejoin the conversation between Stephen Baxter, just as Steve is explaining to us how he shares the gospel in the developing world. For me, I often, <clears throat> I don't have very long, right? Mm-hmm. I've, got, I've got minutes, and I'm often standing out in a field or something, and, um, and I'm talking to people who have little or no frame of reference to the gospel. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I usually go to is John 10.10. 10. Because they are, of course, under the influence of the one that Jesus called the thief. And they immediately recognize. And I'll say, you know, he steals, he steals your peace. He, he, he steals your relationships. He steals your health. He steals, and they start nodding. Though they've never heard the gospel, they know. That's right. That's exactly what happened. And then I give them the second half. But I've come to give you an abundant life. And... That's very much a starting point for me, and that it's already done. I so much emphasize it's already done. Sometimes I will take my phone to my translator and say, this phone's got, it's got all the latest stuff. It's great. Here. And it, and all that needs to be done is just receive that. So for me, I teach that, and it comes very much out of a belief that, um, uh, I don't believe 
and we'll get to this later, but I don't believe in, in that there's ever been a separation between the Father and the Son. The triune God is not schizophrenic. Uh, and I believe that the gospel is, and this is something I got from you a few years ago, Baxter, in reading some of your stuff, is, is unconditional good news. Because there's something, until we get our eyes open, we, no matter what our religious background, we think we've got to do something to make a God who is, if not flat out angry, at least disappointed in us, um, that we can be more acceptable. So when I, I try to go after that in simple words in a few minutes, the basic gospel that I preach is um, you've, you've had enough of the thief. And Jesus says, I've already come. I've, I've not, I'm going to, but I've already done it. It's all done. Mm-hmm. And isn't this amazing news? And um, I was in uh, Botswana, I don't know, maybe four weeks ago, and they just broke out in cheers um, because it is, it is good news. So that's slightly convoluted, but that's really what's going on in my mind when I preach it. It comes out different every time. I don't, don't know what I'm going to say usually until I say it. But but that's the heart of it for me. I, I think um, if I only have a, a few minutes, I just tell people, did you do you know that Jesus is in you? And he brought his father and the Holy Spirit with him. Ask him. Ask Jesus. Mm. Are, are you in me? Yeah. If that's all I've got time to say, then that's what. That's what I'm saying, because I want them to ask Jesus, are you in me? Because I know they're going to hear I am. And that's I am I am. And that's a whole new place to live from now. I can go back to this. And and that's one of the things that's embedded in the Patmos story is that it took even after Aiden experienced Jesus, he still didn't know it was inside of himself. He thought it was an external vision. And John eventually helps him understand, no, the reason I didn't see the vision, Aiden, standing beside you is because it was inside of you. And you can go back there anytime you want. And you encounter Jesus on the inside of your own story and inside of your own soul. So the gospel, in a nutshell, is Jesus Christ is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, John 14, 20. I think this is why uh, people are amazed when I tell them that uh, we'll pray for somebody and they'll get healed. And then I'll immediately have them turn and pray for somebody else. They're not they're not what we would call Christians. They've just simply had a touch from God and they give it away. I've got a good friend um, in India who, based on what you're saying, does the same. When he gathers in a living room with people who don't know Jesus, he'll he'll tell them he's he's in us. Let's just be quiet for a minute and uh, ask him to say something to you. And my friend Anarup, he says it never fails. Of course, Jesus speaks to every one of them. And then he yes. takes them straight to my sheep, hear my voice. And uh, beautiful. So, so that's the application of what you're saying. Okay, so let me ask this. Uh, why, <laughs> why does that upset people? Like in the, in, the, uh, in the established church, in the evangelical tradition, uh, I think a lot of people push back at this 
this presentation of the gospel because they want to see the social contract and pray the prayer. And, and even it's scandalous to think that somebody who's just met Jesus could start operating, uh, at that level, you know, operating in empowered by the Holy Spirit and hearing the voice of God and things like that. that. And yet that is the reality. I was in Bulgaria maybe six weeks ago. Somebody on our team prayed for someone. They got healed, said that was Jesus. That was Jesus. And he just led him in a just in a prayer. I don't wasn't there, but it, it's a prayer of he's he's you want he's on the inside an awakening to that. And then said, and the person, of course, had this wonderful encounter. And then the next person in line wanted healing. So he said, well, you've just received it. You know what to do. Come on. And, and that person who had had this revelation of Christ maybe 45 seconds earlier and had been healed for maybe a minute and a half, <laughs> prayed, and the next person was healed and then prayed with them. And they had this encounter with Christ. It's the of power. It. To me, it's, you know, I, I, I love, of course, I love the prologue, but I also love the parallel of Colossians 1, right? 15 to 20. That yeah. incredible Christological prayer. It's the same principle. He's in everything. He holds everything together. He's not. He doesn't suddenly hold things together when people pray a prayer hmm. or what start feeling deep. differently. He already is. He just is in everything. We, and and to discover him inside of us, and and the way he got inside. Let me back up because I want I want to go through John in a minute and just to show you uh, share with you some of the things that the Lord is showing me about how John <laughs> understands the cross. But before I want to back up because Tim, you said something about this being a, uh, scandalous to the established church earlier, and, and yeah. uh, I don't think it's the established church. I think what we're talking about is the real gospel. Uh, the Greek Orthodox have never believed the stuff that we were taught. And, and they outnumber us yeah. a long way. Yeah. Uh, so what established church are we talking about? We're talking about modern, modern North American evangelical theology. And without saying a word about any person in the system, I am challenging the system and it's little bitty Jesus. And I'm saying it's, un, it's you're being unfaithful theologically to Jesus Christ, who is the creator and sustainer of all things. When yes. you proclaim when you proclaim separation. Wait a minute. On what on what Christological basis are you proclaiming that the human race is separated from Jesus? We start with union. And now we see that sin is not just about moral things that we've done wrong. Sin is about being delusional. And I have recently had a an encounter with a dear friend of mine who for a couple of weeks completely lost the plot. Like uh, they recognized me. She recognized me. But other than that, she was in a completely different world mm. and there was no way to reach to. And I thought, this is the fall of Adam right here. I mean, they're they're used to walking with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit in 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 the Garden of Eden. And they bite the, the lie of the evil one when he says, God knows that when you eat of this, you will be like God. You see, he he, he tricks them into assuming they're separated from God, when God told him, you're created in the image and likeness. 
They already are like God. They believe they weren't like God. Then they have to do something to make something happen. That's that's the Achilles heel of the whole of the whole um, problem of the fall. Is you assume separation, you have to get back. And the reason that people are scandalized by by the message of the Apostle Paul and John and Athanasius in the early church is because it steals away our power. And the only thing that we did to get included in this relationship was to murder Jesus. That's what John is trying to help us to see in his gospel. He walks it right through. We are in, we are delusional, and we've lost the plot completely. We've created a religion in our delusion, and we painted a picture of God in our delusion. Now we've got a vision of the cross in our delusion, and then a vision of the Christian life in our delusion. And we've invested, some of us have invested our whole lives in working the system. So the question, you know, why, why is it scandalized? It's the same reason the Pharisees were scandalized. Because they thought they were doing, they were, they thought they, that all this was originating in, in them and their goodness. I mean, what, what is so terrible about believing that everyone is included? What, what is, what is so horrendous about? <laughs> I'm like, doesn't anybody that knows Jesus want everybody to know Jesus? I mean, and yet I it, I does, it does. It uh, does. I'm sure you too. I get so much pushback on that very issue. Because there's something that I, I think is just our brokenness. It's our brokenness that we're so much more comfortable with the, a dualistic, exclusive worldview than, than an inclusive worldview. And, and that's why it's like it in, instinctively people go, yeah, but what about them? What about them? I there's think it, them and us, and I don't think there's really them and us. I think we're all us. Well, the scripture is telling us from the very beginning when God called Abraham and made a covenant with him. He said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the nations of the earth. This has always been about everyone else. And God called called Abraham and through him the nation of Israel to be the the matrix or the womb of the incarnation. So that it was always planned to be fulfilled in Jesus before the foundation of the world. That's why it says we were chosen in him and predestined to adoption through Jesus because he's not plan B. He's he's the only the one and only plan. It was always planned out to to take place in and through uh, the incarnate Son of God and His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, just like the early church was t- has taught us in the Nicene Creed. So, but that assumption of separation that is the darkness. When when sudden fear comes on you and you're driving down the road, you assume you're separated from God and you project, okay, something's going to happen. And you go to work to try to keep something from happening in the future. And you always assume that the Father, Son, and Spirit are not going to be with you in whatever future there is. And that's the practical way that that, dark, that darkness gets worked out. And then we, then we come up with schemes on how we can manipulate God. I would, uh, I, I'm a granddad now, and it has changed me, changed my yes. life. Yes, um, it does. <laughs> and it really, really brought the, the heart of the gospel alive to me in so many ways. And my, I've got two grandchildren, uh, Caroline and Cooper, and Caroline's the oldest one. And I was over playing with her one day. And, uh, you know, you get to love your grandchildren like God loves us uh, without agenda. You know, it's yes. like, I don't yes. care. Oh, you want to go watch the owls. OK. Oh, you want to read. Oh, oh you want to you want to snap. I want to be with her and God wants to be with us. And share life with us. But one day I was over, and I don't know what happened, um, but for what appeared to be to be no apparent reason, she just fell out on the floor and flung a fit. <laughs> and I'm just looking at her. I'm looking at her, and I said, "I said, uh, Caroline, she calls me Doc. I said, Caroline, that, that dog, <laughs> that dog doesn't hunt with Doc. And uh, 
And so I said, I'm, I'm going to make a c- cup of coffee. And so I was standing there before I went to make a cup of coffee. And, uh, and I said, Lord, what do you do when we spend, I have spent so much of my time fleeing in a fit to try to manipulate you to get you to do what I think you need to do to make things right for like 30 or 40 years. What do you do with us? And, and the, I heard it clearly the other thing. I do the same thing you're doing right now, Baxter. I stand there and look at you like you've lost your mind because you have. And I'm not going anywhere. And after you get done pitching your fit, we can have a real conversation. And it may take 50 years. But I said, Caroline, <laughs> it may take longer. I said, Caroline, I'm going to make uh, – Doc's going to make a cup of coffee if you want to punch the button. I walked right around the corner. And uh, about 10 seconds later, I, these two arms go up. And I just reached up, picked her up. And she punched the button and coffee was being made and off we went. But I just thought that's the perfect picture. She's trying to get me to participate with her in her world, in that delusion, in that moment. And Jesus is Jesus says, I will I will I will enter into delusion, but not to participate with you in it, but to lift you to to uh, to lead you out, to turn on the lights from the inside out. And one of the one of the most powerful passages to me in the New Testament, and you, you don't hear this talked about in um in certain circles, um, but it's fascinating to me um, in Galatians that um, Galatians 1, 15, 16, uh, Paul says, but when he who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. Mm. And even, even the NIV, which is the not included version, yeah. <laughs> uh, or as Paul Young calls it, the new irrational version. Even the NIV translates that as in, because the revelation to Saul of Damascus, what stopped him in his tracks was not an external revelation, because Paul would argue with that. It was a revelation on the inside of his own soul, and it stunned him, and it blew his mind and changed him forever. But he says, he says, when God was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him in the Gentiles. That's right there in Galatians. Wait a minute. Saul of Tarsus considered himself and called himself the chief of sinners. And there's Jesus inside of Saul of Tarsus while he's doing all this crazy, murderous things, even trying to extinguish Jesus. And the Holy Spirit turns the lights on. It's like that's how you deal with the Pharisees. You don't you don't argue with them. You you pray for that. The Holy Spirit would would uh, open their eyes that they may understand what is. So there's a passage in, uh, and I'm jumping ahead in a little bit here, but in John 16, I'm just going to read John 16, 8 to 11, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. Mm-hmm. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged, which I think that's very interesting. The ruler of this world has been judged. We, we hear judgment and we instantly you know, judge, judge the sinners, but that's not who he says is going to get judged, which is interesting. Um, but that you're talking about the role of the Holy spirit revealing to, uh, to Saul of Tarsus that the very one he's pitched himself against Jesus Christ is in him already. Um, this passage is saying he, that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world about sin. Is that actually what what that moment was about? Was was Paul being convicted of his sin? And what is what is what is sin? Well, he, Jesus defines it. Um, he says, um, and when he 
comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, judges. Those three topics. First, um, the the word translated convict. Uh, I think a better translation of that is expose. Hmm. The Holy Spirit exposes, brings out into light so we can begin to deal with things. But the three things is first is concerning sin and he defines it. Sin is not believing in me. Not believing in me in you. It's believing in yourself. It's believing that you know how to get across the divide. That's what happened with Saul of Tarsus. He had they had the Pharisees had the thing mapped out. And they were working the program. And it's like, you know, the man who was strutting to his first class seat uh, only to discover he was on the wrong plane. That's good. <laughs> That's a good little metaphor. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and Saul is like, oh, I have this all backwards. Sin is not fundamentally about morality. Sin is about unbelief. They don't. You don't believe in me. That's what the Holy Spirit's going, going to expose our unbelief in Jesus, so that we can begin to see. And then righteousness is even better because he says, "Because I go to the Father." Well, we've defined righteousness in the West in the legal framework as being about the Ten Commandments or about being without sin. And the word righteousness means right relationship. And, and he's going to show us righteousness is me and the Father face to face. In the Holy Spirit. So when you when the Holy Spirit exposes that, you now know what real relationship, what real righteousness is. You can get off your your hamster's wheel of where you're trying to create your own righteousness to get you across an invisible divide so that God will accept you. And then the last one is um, is judgment. I mean, if you think about it, uh, if people. I mean, the, the last three things any of us believe we're wrong about is sin, righteousness and judgment. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit, I mean, what Jesus is saying, guys, you got these backwards. Everything else is backwards, too, but these three. And so the judgment has nothing to do with about, about our being judged for our sins. It is the judgment. Is this all started with the serpent? And I'm casting him out. I am taking care of this, just like I promised in Genesis 3. That's the judgment of God. In that in that sense right there. Now, there are judgments in terms of discernments. And sometimes um, I can give you a great illustration of how the Holy Spirit, of what I mean by exposure. Uh, when I was working, uh, I got the idea on on uh, Patmos one morning and I jumped up and I ran to my computer and I typed up what amounts to the first three chapters just to get it out. And then I stood up. I was, I was sitting right here and I stood up right here and I said, Holy Spirit. You're being rude to me. And and I and I felt the, the Holy Spirit saying, and I said, why would you give to me an extraordinary idea like a burned out suicidal Western theologian who time travels and ends up having a three day, three night mind boggling healing conversation with the Apostle John? Why would you do that to me when you know that I cannot write like that? And as quick as anything, I hear, well, Baxter, I can write like that. Why don't we do it together? <laughs> and I said, for real, like, like we're going to we're going to you're going to stay with me all the way through this thing. And it's going to be a book that has life and insight and be worth reading and, and will move people to tears and introduce John and his vision to the to other people. And this is what I mean by exposure right here. The Holy Spirit said to me, Baxter. I am not the one who leads. 
L-E-A-V-E-S. I'm saying, Holy Spirit, are you going to hang with me? Holy Spirit flipped it around and says, I'm not the one who leaves. I have come in Jesus with the Father, and we've pitched our tent inside of you, inside of your darkness. You're the one who leaves your own heart because it's sometimes too painful. But we're here. And so you don't have to be begging me to stay. You just come back to your own heart, and we're going to have, we're going to have fun. Uh, you come back to me, the, the Lord and giver of life. I was, that's exposure. That's what he, that's what he's talking about, is that you you've got this frame back to where you think I come and go, and it's you who comes and goes. So it's that flip like that, and that's what he's doing with those three words. Um, and I particularly enjoy uh, the judgment part because um, the ruler of this world has been judged. He has been found out. He has been exposed, and it's over. Now, Jesus is teaching us how to live in his victory, how to participate with him in his victory. Um, you, want, you want to say some more about that? I mean, that's a, there's, you know, you've read the commentaries. I mean, there's a whole lot of discussion about that. That's the way as, I see it. As many commentaries as I have on John, that's how many opinions there is on this passage. It, you know, it, they always say it's notoriously difficult. Um, but I... Uh, within, the, within the assumption of separation, it is difficult. Yes. How, how can sin have anything to do with unbelief and, and righteousness being by Jesus being face to face with the Father? I hadn't looked to see if, if, the, if the word process used in verse 10 there. I, that's a, that may be a new one. One of the things that I'd, I'd like to just emphasize for our listeners is, um, is how central, and you and I have talked about this twice now, how central the issue of a separated worldview is that it absolutely distorts, or if we don't have that view, uh, it heals everything. I don't think it's possible to have a healthy, healed um, theology, certainly not an eschatology, with, uh, <laughs> with a, a separated worldview. No, it's just no, not no. possible. And this is so central. Can I just be selfish? I'd like you to say it all over again, what you said about 20 minutes ago, uh, out of uh, John fourteen six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. Would yeah. you just say it again? Because that that key word in there uh, opened that whole verse up in a different way. Do you mind backtracking to that? Oh heck no! Um, but as we make our way back there, I just looked it up. It, uh, verse ten uh, and concerning righteousness, because I go pros face to face mm. with the Father. So that word is all in John, and Pros. it's P R O S, from yep. which we uh, pros upon, from which we get face and person, actually. So, um, but John um, fourteen six. I mean, the whole upper room is the disciples are beginning to feel really like something's going on here that's not good. Yeah, um, they're getting and nervous. So, <laughs> and so Jesus is telling them, guys, um, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and he uses the metaphor of the Father's house. And, yeah. But where he's going, where he's going to prepare a place for them is in the Father's heart. That's where he's going in his face-to-face relationship. So, and if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. So I'm I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Um, and we'll come to John fourteen twenty shortly. And then he says, uh, Thomas says, Lord, where, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. That is to say, the truth and the life. I am. Reality, and I am the life. No one 
no one experiences eternal life, which is relationship with knowing my father except in me. I am the one who's face to face with the father and I lift your face because if you think about Adam and Eve, they're in the garden of Eden. They have fallen for the lie of separation. They have invented a new God. They're scared to death. They're hiding inside the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means inside the delusion. They're hiding in a delusion. And so the, the whole story in fear and shame, that is the problem of the human race, is that we believe we're separated. We've created a, a delusional deity, and we're hiding, and we're not coming out. And the chief place that we hide is in our made-up religion, just like, just like the Pharisees did. We do all this stuff in action because we're scared to death of God, and we're trying to. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm the one, I'm the only one in the cosmos who knows the Father, is face-to-face with him, and I'm going to lift your face so that you can see that you're face-to-face with him too. And that's, that's all about what John 17 is about, that the glory with which you have given me, that they may see, they may see my glory. And you think, well, wait a minute, that seems to be a bit egotistical. And, um, but my friend David Qualick has written a book called All About Glory. He's, a, he's an Australian brother, and um, can't, he can't fish very well. <laughs> uh, but 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 uh jesus is going to teach him some things about fishing but he he says that glory uh is the essential nature uh and character of a person or place or event so when jesus talks about that they may behold my glory he's praying to the father that they can see who i am with you face to face righteousness and they can believe because they're, they're still trapped in the darkness. And as they see who I am face to face, they can know who they are. So there's this. And, and when John the Baptist in John 1 uh, says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the way it's translated in New American Standard. Uh, I don't think takes away is the right translation. Of course, there's all a debate about that. But I think the emphasis is behold to see to encounter with the eyes of your heart the Lamb. And in encountering the Lamb inside of yourself, it lifts the crushing weight of, of, um, of darkness and delusion. And you can be, face to me, be in me face to face with my Father. That, that, I think, is what John is saying. And I think he uses the, the, fray and the, look, the imagery of the Lamb because he has realized that God is not at all like we thought he was. That the greatest, uh, and he does this in the book of Revelation, the most definitive metaphor, if we want to say that, of the nature and character of the Father, Son, and Spirit is a little lamb, those yes. alive, those slain. It's yes. not the warrior overlord. No. It's not, it's not Zeus with an attitude, as Paul Young says. It's not Janus, the two-faced God, as my friend Rod Williams talks about. So, so he is lifting our face. That's what it means, pros. No one... No one comes face to face with my father but in me because you're living in shame. You never get there from the tree. So to take that back to the garden of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, what Jesus is going to do. And John's the one that shows this is that Jesus is not only going to go to the tree and whisper to Adam and Eve to try to convince them that they're wrong. What Jesus is going to do is get inside of their delusion, inside of themselves and turn the lights on. So now there's a way that they can begin to see not through their own eyes, but participate in his eyes. 
participate. And, he, and Jesus says that all the way. You know, I'm giving you my mind. I'm giving you my heart. I'm giving you my peace. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> he, he's invited us into this, this triune relationship. Uh, in John 15, 9, he says, As the Father's loved me, I've also loved you. Remain in my love. I want to talk about two things. We'll come back to that word remain and, and how to do that in a minute. But if he's inviting us into the same kind of relationship, he says, as the fathers love me, so I've loved you. Remain in that. How, how can we learn about Jesus' love for us based on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Because the way the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father is the only way they know to be. And that the relationship of the Father with us is not behind the back of Jesus. It's in Jesus. They love us with the same love with which they love themselves, one another. That's what Jesus is saying in John 17, that the love with which you love me as the eternal son face to face with you, that very love may be in them and I in them as the anointed one in the Holy Spirit. So when, when and this is the, this is the, one of the disasters of um, of penal substitution. I mean, it rips apart inside of the human soul any notion of the Father, Son being oneness, being one, indivisibly one, homoousios topati, of the same being as the Father. Because now you've got this vision of God, it's etched into the fallen imagination, and it's been, it's been given theological expression in the Western tradition, where the Father is fundamentally different than the Son, because the Father is, cannot even look at us and is disgusted with us. And Jesus not only can look upon sin and sinners, the Apostle Paul says Jesus became sin. He entered into our unbelief to the place so that we he we could bring be participate in his right relationship with his father. So when you've got that split between the father and the son, then it doesn't you, looking at their relationship is, is not really much benefit to you at all because the fathers may have that relationship with Jesus, but he doesn't have that relationship with us. And I'm separated and I've got to figure out how to get God to do towards me what he doesn't do naturally. So what I'm saying is the, what John is saying to us, and I think the Apostle Paul is screaming it, is that before this whole creation came into being, there is this face to face relationship. That's the only way God is. And every, if you want to take all of the attributes of God and make a big, huge list, um, they're not vying like the love of, and grace of God and the, and the goodness of God is not opposed to the wrath and justice and holiness and righteousness of God. No, we take all of those, all of those attributes and we, we, we define them in relation to the Trinity because that's the deepest truth of God's being is that relationship. That's Nicaea. And so what is, we see then that the love of God is the way the Father, Son, and Spirit love one another. The holiness of God that Isaiah saw, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The holiness of God is not that God is impersonal and detached and removed. Holiness is one of a kind in a class by itself. It's a reference to the way the Father, Son, and Spirit love one another. There's nothing like it in the cosmos. It is one of a kind. Uh, the wrath of God, for example, is not the opposite of God's love, such that he has to pour out his wrath and is satisfied before he can love us or before his love for us can be effective. The wrath of God is the passionate, uh, fiery opposition uh, of the Father, Son, and Spirit to our destruction. 
when they created us and when Adam and Eve fell, the, the, the word is, uh, the, the Lord's response is not on my watch. I did not create you to perish, and you're not. I'm, I'm taking care of this. So the wrath of God has been has been thrown into this split between the Father and the Son, and it comes out looking very different than than to me a, a, a more thorough vision as we learn uh, in Jesus that the the incarnation is the ultimate expression of the wrath of God. It is the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit in fiery action opposing our destruction. And so that so you, you begin to see a healing and all the attributes they come together because they're talking about this relationship. Now I can begin. Well, of course, the father loves me like he loves the son. He created me in that relationship for that relationship. There's no other way for the father to be. That is. And so when Jesus um, and this, this would take us far afield. But anyway, uh, in John 13, which I think is a parallel to John 17. I think those two chapters are modifying each other. Um, I think it's a huge chiasm, the whole upper room. But in John 13, 13, when Jesus, knowing, says, knowing that his time had come to to return or be face to face with the Father, um, he took off his um, his outer garment and stooped down and began to wash the disciples' feet. Well, John, it's clear. Jesus never does anything that he does not see his father doing. He doesn't speak. He doesn't act. He doesn't he doesn't react except what he sees in, in intimate fellowship with his father. And so is the stooping of Jesus to wash the disciples feet an expression of the father son relationship? Or is that just a one off thing that they did once just to show that they can be humble on Tuesday? But what we're looking at there is God, the father, almighty's very character. That's who he is. Yes. He stoops. He stoops to serve his creation. He loves the creation. That's what Jesus is trying to get through to the disciples in John 13. And he prays for the same thing in John 17. So when you ask the question, what can we learn from looking at the father son relationship? That's the only way God is and always has been and always will be. That's the most stable relationship. Our most stable reality in the cosmos is the love of the father, son and spirit for one another. And they love us with that same love. Now, that changes. Um, that's changed me because I I used to have I still have it in me, but it used to be much uh, more profound, I think, than it is now. I had two gods in my mind, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and what I call G.O.D., and that's the faceless, nameless, omni-being up there somewhere who's watching us like a hawk from the infinite distance of a disapproving heart. And and when you, you have that single God, which is our Western inheritance coming from Greek philosophy, when you have that single God, that single person God up there, you, you begin to realize, oh, my goodness, that God is alone from all eternity. And that God is not a lover by nature until there's a creation and something to love. From all eternity, that God is not a lover by nature. So you find this when sudden fear comes on, we kick over in psychologically into, uh, oh, my goodness, I'm standing before the single deity, the single person deity who's not who does not love me altruistically for my benefit, who does not, in fact, love at all until there's a creation. But it's not his essential being. And that's why the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the reasons is so critical. The doctrine of the Trinity means that God is essentially lover from all eternity. There's mm-hmm. never been a time when they were not together. The single God, that definition of love is, is in the end narcissistic. It's about him. It's about his glory and not about, not about 
uh, blessing his creation for his creation's benefit because that's who he is. So it's changed the way I see the character of the father in particular. And I don't beg him. I used to beg him. Mm. Uh, I used it's to one beg of the God. I, I teach to don't yep. don't beg. He delights. He delights in us. He delights to give. He delights to heal. And uh, don't it, don't beg him. Yeah, I, I, uh, my, I have two daughters. Uh, and uh, I remember once sitting there having a conversation with my oldest daughter, Laura, when she was younger. Um, she's the one with the grandbabies right now. But anyway, I told Laura, I said, honey, don't ever try to manipulate me. If you want something, just be straightforward and come and ask me. Because when you manipulate me, you're assuming that I don't want to bless you. And my intention is to give you everything that I have. Uh, but you got to give me some space to be a little bit uh, wiser than you are. Because only because I'm down the same road that you're on, I'm just a couple of miles down the road. So I may not give you what you want, because, but it's only because I don't think it's in your best interest. But, but you don't have to. And the minute I was saying that to her, I mean, it was like the Holy Spirit exposing my darts to myself. Like, well, why did you do that to the Father? Why do you insult him by trying to manipulate him by your good works or your praise or your prayers or your chance to get him to do something for you that uh, that you think and believe he needs to do and he's withholding? So I don't see the father as a withholder. And when sudden fear comes to me, particularly financial fear, has been probably my, my big struggle all my life. Uh, it used to take me out emotionally uh, for days, if not months. Um trembling inside because I don't know how I can make this happen. If he's not going to make it happen, please make it happen. God, that kind of, that kind of prayer. And now my prayer is when a sudden fear comes financially, I stop, uh, drop and roll. <laughs> I stop. And I said, I said, this time, father, I'm going to catch you in the act. I'm watching. You're not going to surprise me this time. I'm not going to live for a week in fear. I'll only discover that there was a check in the mail before I, the sudden fear ever came. Now, I know you're good and you're for me. I'm going to watch for it. So I'm looking actively for the, the presence and, and love of the Father, Son, and Spirit in my life, particularly with, with respect to finances. Uh, that's been where I've, you know, I'm, I've seen that. It's like, oh, my goodness. So that's a huge question. But in the end, for me, uh, the relationship of the Father, Son, the way they are turned toward one another, that is the definition of righteousness. That is the definition of holiness. That is the definition uh, of all the attributes of God are about that. And we can rest in the way the Father loves the Son. And uh, George MacDonald, uh, one of my favorite writers, Scottish uh, yes, writer. Yes, wonderful. His book, Christ in Creation, is pure gold. Uh, but in, in that book, Christ in Creation, is, there's a version of it edited by Roland Hine uh, from Wheaton College that's available on Amazon. But in that book, in one of his sermons, uh, MacDonald says, as long as the father loves the son and the son loves the father, all is well with the little ones. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I, so, so ultimately, ultimately, uh, what the evil one does is that he's going to, uh, and if you take John fourteen twenty, in that day you will know, you will discover as real that I am in the Father, because our relationship is so beautiful and so right. And so in a class by itself, the only way you can talk about our relationship is you're going to begin to see me in the Father and the Father's in me. And that's the, the deepest part, the meaning of the word peri, uh, perichoresis, but, um, uh, as we say in the South, perichoresis. Um, but in that day, you will know 
that I am the one who is rightly related to the Father. And you are not outside, but you're in me, included in my right relationship with the Father, and I am in you. Now, that's my favorite verse in all the Bible. Um, I, I'm just I'm so thrilled and thankful it's for John. Too. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Um, but but um, one day I was preaching on it, and right in the middle of the sermon, I get this revelation because I had been asking the Lord. I said, Paul talks about the schemes of the of the evil one, and we're not a, unaware of his schemes. And I said, Well, why didn't you bother to tell us what the schemes were? And I'm like, How does what's what's going on there? And right in the middle of preaching on John fourteen twenty, I get the revelation that here here is the strategy of the evil one. Let's rip the Father Son Spirit uh, relationship apart in human imagination. So when you see Jesus, you don't think the Father, and you don't get anywhere near the face to face oneness. Let's rip from their minds, veil, blind the human race to any notion that they are already included in that relationship. And then the third part is let's blind them to the fact that not only are they included in that relationship, but Jesus himself as the Father in his oneness with the Father and the anointing of the Holy Spirit is already in us. So if you take those three things and blind the human race, that, that's, that leaves us with ourselves to get back to our imaginary deity, which is pretty much what we have right now uh, all across the globe. Well, I hope you're enjoying our chat with Baxter. We ended up talking for a full two hours, so you can catch the second half of our discussion next week in episode 28. If this episode has stirred up some questions in you, you can send those questions to podcast at impactnations.com, and we'll discuss them during our next Q&A episode. In the meantime, don't forget to stop by impactnations.com slash JOC to learn more about Journeys of Compassion and our 2019 schedule. Tune in again next week for part two of our time with Baxter Kruger. Thanks, and have a great week.